This episode is brought to you by Mary Maledictions. As you know, Maledictions has always been the world leader in accursed objects for the discriminating buyer with a seething vendetta. They've got anathemas, bans, execrations, malazons, and winzes. If you need an imprecation, they've got every color. You know you can depend on maledictions when you need a hoodoo or jinx, but if your spirit of Christmas is vengeance and spite, this is your chance to try Merry Maledictions, their new line of Christmas-themed abominations. How about a Christmas tree that walks around the house at night swapping everyone's toothbrushes? Or an elf on the shelf that is really watching everything you do? Or a stocking that's filled only with pain? What's in the box? Pain. Give a Christmas that your family will remember for the rest of their lives, however much longer that is. And thank you, Merry Maledictions, for sponsoring the Rereading Wolf podcast. This episode is brought to you by the support of generous listeners just like you. You can learn how to be one of them at patreon.com slash rereadingwolf. And thank you, listener patrons, for supporting the Rereading Wolf podcast. This is a special Christmas bonus episode of the Rereading Wolf podcast. We'll read you a special Christmas ghost story from Gene Wolfe, and then in our usual way, sit and ramble on and on and on about it. Merry Christmas. How the Bishop Sailed to Inniskeen Epigraph There was a king to rule the islands then, chosen for might, who had his admiral of all the Inniskees. The priest's sick call was this cold pasture's only festival. T.H. White This is the story Hogan told as we sat before our fire in the unroofed chapel looking up at the niche above the door, the niche that had held the holy stone. "'Twas St. Sian's pillow," said Hogan, "'and rough when he got it, rough as a pike's kiss. Smooth it was when he died, for his head had smoothed it sixty years. Couldn't a maid have done it nicer, and where the stone had worn away was the virgin, her picture belike sir and the markins that been in the stone." It sounded as if he meant to talk no more, so I said, "'What would he want with a stone pillow, Pat?' This, though I knew the answer, simply because the night and the lonesome wind sweeping in off the Atlantic had made me hungry for a human voice. "'Not for his own sins, sure, for he'd none, but for yours, sir, and mine. There was others, too, that come to live on this island.' "'Other hermits, you mean?' Hogan nodded. "'And when they was gone, the fisherfolk come, me own folk with them. "'Twas they that built this chapel here, and they set the holy stone above the door, "'for he was dead and didn't want it. "'When it was storming, they'd make a broom and dip it in the water, "'and sprinkle the holy stone, and the storm would pass. "'But if it was storming bad, they'd carry the stone to the water and dip it in.' "'I nodded, thinking how hard and how lonely life must have been for them on the Inneskees, "'and a fisherman drowned. "'What happened to it, Pat?' "'Twas sunk in the bay in me grandfather's time.' Hogan paused, but I could see that he was thinking, still talking in himself, as he himself would have said. Some says it was the pirates, and some the Protestants. They told that to the women that come from Dublin, and she believed them. I'd been in Hogan's company for three days, and was too sage a hound to go herring off after the woman from Dublin. In any event, I knew already that she was the one who had fenced in the Cromlech at the summit of the island. So I said, what do you think, Pat? What really happened to it? The bishop took it. Me own grandfather saw him, him that was dead when I was born. Or me great-grandfather, it might be one or the other. Don't matter. But me father told me, 
and the bishop took it Christmas Eve. The wind was rising. Hogan's boat was snug enough down in the little harbor, but I could hear the breakers crash not two hundred yards from where we sat. There was never a priest here. Only this and a man to take care of it. O.D. his name was. Because I was already thinking of writing about some of the things he told me, though in the event I've waited so long, I said, That was your grandfather, Pat, I feel certain. A relative, no doubt, sir, Hogan conceded, for they were all relations on this island, more or less. But my grandfather was only a lad. O.D. cared for the place when he wasn't out in his boat. It was the women, you see, that wedded the holy stone when the men were away. I said, It's a pity we haven't got it now, but if it's in the bay, it ought to be wet enough. "'Tis not, sir. "'Tis in Dublin, in their big museum there, and dry as a bone. "'A woman from there fetched it this summer. "'Thought you said the bishop threw it in the bay. "'She had a mask for her face,' Hogan continued, as though he hadn't heard me, "'and a rubber bathing costume for the rest of her, "'an air and a tin tied to her back, just like you see.' "'He meant, as I've seen it on television. Three days she drove from Kilkelly's boat. "'Friday it was she brought it up in two pieces.' Some say she broke it under the water to make the bringing up easier. Hogan paused to light his pipe. I asked, did the bishop throw it in the bay? In a manner of speaking, sir. It all began when he was just a young priest, you see. The bishop that was before him had stuck close to the cathedral, as sometimes they will. In the old days, it was not easy journeying. Very bad it was in winter. If you'd seen the roads before they were made, you'd thank the Lord for General Wade. Having had difficulties of my own in traveling around the west of Ireland in a newish Ford Fiesta, I nodded sympathetically. So this one, when he got the job, he made a speech. The devil take me, he says, if ever I say mass Christmas Eve twice in the same church. And the devil took him, I suggested. That he did not, sir, for the bishop was as good as his word. As the times wore on, there was many a one that begged him to stop, but there was no holding him. Come the tag in of Advent, off he'd go. And if he heard that there was one place worse than another, it's where he went. One year, a priest from Ballycroy went on the pilgrimage, and he told the bishop a bit about Inneskeen, having been once or twice. Send word, says the bishop, to this good man O.D., tell him to have a boat waiting for me at Arras. They settled it by a fight, and it was me grandfather's own father that was to bring him. Ah, I said. My grandfather wanted to come along to help with the boat, sure, but his father wouldn't allow it. It was that rough, and he had to wait in the chapel, right here, sir, with his mother. They was all here a long time before midnight, sure, talking the one to the other and waiting on the bishop. And my grandfather, recollect he was but a little lad, sir, he fell asleep. Next thing he knew, his mother was shaking him. Wake up, Sean, for he's come. He wakes and sits up, rubbing his eyes, and there's the bishop. But Lord, sir, there wasn't half there that should have been. Late as the sun rises at Christmas was near the time. Didn't matter a hair to his excellency. He shook all the men by the hand and smiled at all the women and patted me grandfather's head and blessed everybody. Then he begun the mass. You never heard the like, sir. When they sang, there was angels singing with them. Sure, they couldn't see him, but they knew that they was there and they could hear him. And when the bishop preached, they saw the gates and got the smell of heaven. It was like crying for happiness. And it was forever. My father said the good man used to cry a bit himself when he talked of it, which he did, sir, every year about this time until he left this world. When the mass was over, the bishop blessed them all again, and he gave O.D. a letter, and O.D. kissed his ring, which was an honor to him after. My grandfather saw his father waiting to take the bishop back to Arras, 
and knew he'd been in the back of them. Right back there, sir. We were burning wreckage we'd picked up on the beach earlier. Hogan paused to throw a broken timber on the fire. The stone, Pat, I said. Oh, the bishop took it, sure. After he gave the letter, he points at it, do you see? Hogan pointed to the empty niche. And he says, sorry I am, O.D., but I must have that. Then O.D. gets up on a stool, "'Twas what they sat on here, and gives it to him, and off he goes with me grandfather's father. All natural, sir, but me grandfather lagged behind when the women went home, and as soon as there wasn't one looking, off he runs after the bishop, for he hopes his father'd allow him this time, it being not so rough as the night before. You know where the rock juts, sir? You took a picture from there. Of course, I said. Me grandfather run out onto that rock, sir, for there's a bit of a moon by then, and he's wanting to see if they'd put out. They hadn't, sir. He sees his father there in the boat, holding it close in for the bishop, and he sees the bishop holding the holy stone and stepping into it. Up comes the sun, and devil a boat or bishop or father or holy stone there is. My grandfather's father's body washed up on Duvillon, but never the bishop's. He'd wanted the holy stone, do you see, to wait him, or some say to sleep on there on the bottom, which is the same thing, maybe. I nodded. In that place with the wind moaning around the ruined stone chapel, it didn't seem impossible or even strange. They're all dead now, sir. There's not a man alive that was born on these islands, or a woman either. But they do say the ghosts of them that missed midnight mass can be seen coming over the bay Christmas Eve. For they was buried on the mainland, sir, most of them, or died at sea like the bishop. I never seen him mind. Don't want to. Hogan was silent for a long time after that, and so was I. At last I said, you're suggesting that I come back here and have a look. Hogan knocked out his pipe. You've an interest in such things, sir, and so I thought I ought to mention it. I could take you out by daylight and leave you here with your food and sleeping bag and your camera. Christmas Day I'd come by for you again. I have to go to Bangor, Pat. I know you do, sir. Let me think about it. What was in the letter? It was after New Year's when they read it, sir, for O'Dee wouldn't let it out of his hands. Sure, there wasn't a soul on the island that could read, and no school. It says the bishop had drowned on his way to Inneskeen to say the midnight mass, and asked the good people to make a novena for his soul. The priest at Eris wrote it, two days after Christmas. Hogan lay down after that, but I could not. I went outside with a flashlight and roamed over the island for an hour or more, cold though it was. I had come to Inneskeen, the westernmost of Ireland's westernmost island group, in search of the remote past. For I am, among various other things, a writer of novels about that past, a chronicler of Xerxes and King Pausanias, and indeed the past was here in plenty. Sinking vessels from the Spanish Armada had been run aground here, Vikings had strode the very beaches I paced, and earlier still, Neolithic people had lived here largely upon shellfish or so their middens suggested. And yet it seemed to me that night that I hadn't found the past, but the future. For they were all gone, as Hogan had said. The Neolithic people had fallen, presumably, before the modern Celtic Irish, becoming one of the chief strands of Irish fairy lore. The last of St. Sian's hermits had died in grace, leaving no disciple. The fishermen had lived here for two hundred years or more, generation after generation, harvesting the treacherous sea and tiny gardens of potatoes, and for a few years there had actually been a whaling station on North Island. No more. The Norwegians sailed from their whaling station for the last time long ago. 
Long ago, the Irish Land Commission removed the fisherfolk and resettled them. Their thatched stone cottages are tumbling down, as the hermit's huts did earlier. Gray sea geese nest upon Inneskeen again, and otters whistle above the whistling wind. A few shaggy black cattle are humanity's sole contribution. I cannot call them wild, because they don't know human beings well enough for fear. In the Inneskees, our race is already extinct. We stayed a hundred centuries and are gone. I drove to Bangor the following day, December 22nd. There I sent two cables and made transatlantic calls, learning only that my literary agent, who might perhaps have acted, had not the slightest intention of doing so before the holidays, and that my publishers, who might certainly have acted if they chose, would not. Already all of Ireland, which delights in closing at every opportunity, was gleefully locking its doors. I would have to stay in Bangor over Christmas or drive on to Dublin, praying the while for an open petrol station, or go back to Eris. I filled my rented Ford's tank until I could literally dabble my forefinger in gasoline and return to Eris. I won't regale you here with everything that went wrong on the 24th. Hogan had an errand that could neither be neglected nor postponed. His usually dependable motor wouldn't start, so that eventually we were forced to beg the proprietor of the only store that carried such things to leave his dinner to sell us a spark plug. It was nearly dark before we pushed off, and the storm that had been brewing all day was ready to burst upon us. We're mad, you know, Hogan told me, me as much as you. He was at the tiller, his pipe clenched between his teeth. I was huddled in the bow in a life jacket, my hat pulled over my ears. How'll you make a fire, sir? Tell me that. Through chattering teeth, I said that I would manage somehow. No, you won't, sir, for we'll never get there. I said that if he was waiting for me to tell him to turn back, he'd have to wait until we reached Inneskeen, and I added bitterly that if Hogan wanted to turn back, I couldn't prevent him. I've taken your money and given me word. We'll make it, Pat, as though to give me the lie, lightning lit the bay. Do you see the island, then? No, I said, and added that we were surely miles from it still. I must know if I'm steering right, Hogan said. Don't you have a compass? It's no good for this, sir. We're shaking too much. It was an ordinary pocket compass, as I should have remembered, and not a regular boat's compass in a binnacle. After that, I kept a sharp lookout forward. Low-lying North Island was invisible to my right, but from time to time I caught sight of higher, closer South Island. The land I glimpsed at times to our left might have been Duvalon, or Inisglora, or even Achill, or all three. Black rock light was visible only occasionally, which was somewhat reassuring. At last, when the final sullen twilight had vanished, I caught sight of Inneskeen only slightly to our left. Pointing, I half rose in the bow as Hogan swung it around to meet a particularly dangerous comber. It lifted us so high that it seemed certain we were being flipped end for end. We raced down its back and plunged into the trough, only to be lifted again at once. Hang on, Hogan shouted. At that moment, lightning cut the dark bowl of the sky from one horizon to the other. I pointed indeed, but I pointed back toward Eris. I would have spoken if I could, but I didn't need to. In two hours or less, we were sitting comfortably in Hogan's parlor over whiskey toddies. The German tradition of the Christmas tree, which we Americans now count among American customs, hasn't taken much root in Ireland. But there was an advent calendar with all its postage stamp-sized windows wide and gifts done up in brightly colored papers. And the little creche, we'd call it a crib set, with its as-yet-empty manger, cracked ethereal Mary, and devoted Joseph had more to say about Christmas than any tree I've ever seen. Perhaps you'll come back next year, Hogan suggested, after we'd related our adventures, and then we'll have another go. I shook my head. 
His wife looked up from her knitting and with that single glance understood everything I'd been at pains to hide. What was it you saw? she asked. I did not tell her, then or later, nor am I certain that I can tell you. It was no ghost, or at least there was nothing of sheet or skull or ectoplasm, none of the conventional claptrap of movies and Halloween. In appearance, it was no more than the floating corpse of a rather small man with longish white hair. He was dressed in dark clothes, and his eyes, I saw them plainly as he rolled in the wave, were open. No doubt it was the motion of the water, but as I stared at him for half a second or so in the lightning's glare, it appeared to me that he raised his arm and gestured, invitingly, and with the utmost goodwill in the direction of Inneskeen. I have never returned to Ireland, and never will. And yet I have no doubt at all that the time will soon come when I too shall attend his midnight mass in the ruined chapel. What will follow that service, I cannot guess. In Christ's name, I implore mercy for my soul. How the Bishop Sailed to Inneskeen so you just heard that, <laughs> but Merry Christmas. We're going we're gonna to talk about it again. Um, figure well, this is our little bonus Christmas episode for you. So this is one of the stories we didn't talk about in previous years, one of the Christmas stories. And it came out, uh, let's see, it first came out in a book called Spirits of Christmas, 21 Otherworldly Tales. Um, this one's edited by uh, David Hartwell, who we all know, and Catherine Kramer, who... Eventually. Um, that eventually. we were just checking, yeah, eventually becomes uh, Hartwell's wife. Right. Um, but I didn't know that. You remembered that. And mm-hmm. that's pretty cool. Detail I had not forgotten. But it's a fun book, by the way. I mean, honestly, I had this book for a few years before I even remembered that the story was in here uh, because of the Christmas obsession. Um, obviously, I buy books without immediately reading them because <laughs> I would have noticed if I'd gone through that. But uh, it's got a story by Michael Bishop, uh, one by Swanwick, James Morrow, uh, Chet Williamson is in here too. Uh, a few other people, um, even older stories as well, like Dickens. Dickens is in here too, but, yeah. but Wolf is the uh, third story. Um, yeah. But anyway, yeah, uh, fun little story. Very, a little bit different from the other ones because this one actually is based on something relatively, it, at least it's it's at least based on something discussed in nonfiction um whether or not it was actually true can't really say but um it starts with four lines from a poem by th white uh th white of once and future king fame um but wolf uh as mark garamini tells us in his write-up on the story uh which is in by the way mark's second volume of stuff right, that goes right, up right. through 1990 uh so you can see that if you're if you're interested, you have that one, that volume of Mark's books, Beyond Time and Memory. Is that Beyond it? Time and Memory, yeah, right. Yep. So he's got a good discussion in there, talks about a lot of the illusions, which we'll mention some of this as well. But the big thing that Mark looked up was when he found this passage from White, it comes from also a section of White's uh, journals where he's talking about actually taking a trip very much like the writer in the story took and going out to these same islands, which are real. Right. And Inneskees, um, Inneskees, right? Yeah. And sort of thinking about a lot of the same issues that the, the writer is thinking about here. But also it turns out that this legend that it's based on is something of, at least according to White, a real legend. And right. um, I did a little bit of brief searching and I couldn't find anything else about 
the actual legend. Um, but that, that, like I said, it was brief, brief search. So, <laughs> so who knows? But yeah, so it starts with these four little lines. So let's, we should go over those again right, right, right. and talk about them. So here's just a reminder. Here's what they are. There was a king to rule the islands then, chosen for might, who had his admiral of all the Inneskis, or Inneskias, not really sure. Probably Inneskis. I just think, because I'll tell you why I think that. Because if you go on Google Maps and you try to find Inneskin, you will find an inland village on uh, on the east side of Ireland called Inneskin. And it's a small village, but it's not deserted and it's not an island, but which is kind of a strange thing that a village would be called that because the name Inneskeen, and they actually have this on their website, means uh, island of peace. <laughs> and I don't okay. know how a, a village gets called that. So it, anyway, but it, so if you're going to find on Google Maps, you should look for Inneskeen, K-E-E. So cool. I was trying to think if there's, I, I don't know enough about Gaelic to know anything at all but um, i was trying to remember if my my meager little bit <laughs> from notre dame had done me anything but nope um okay so uh it goes on so he's there was a king to rule the islands then chosen for might who had his admiral of all the anaskis the priest's sick call was this cold pastures only festival <laughs> thy so we do get in this poem white talks about this festival and the priest's mm-hmm. sick call and we don't really get any more from this. What does um, it mean? Did, do, but, what is it? What any understanding of what they mean? What the term "priests' sick call" means? I mean, the only thing I could think of is the sick call would be like a sick call out to the island, um, it, which is kind of like coming to the the poor place is a little bit like a sick call, you know, a place mm. that you need to do a little healing out here. No, okay, um, yeah, could be, you know, but like, again, I don't really, I didn't read the rest of the poem, <laughs> so I, so I'm not really sure the whole context. Um, Mark does a good job of connecting what Wolf was doing here to the rest of the legend as as White describes it. Uh, but as far as this one poem goes and this one um, allusion, I'm not really sure because to me, this little poem talks about how it, you have this place that was ruled by, as he says, might. It was ruled by by. By force, you know, by by force, but then chosen mentioned, by, he's chosen by Mike. You're chosen right? by, yeah. Which you know, it's not horrible. You know, it's not it's not like a horrible thing. But well, then it's kind of like kind of like. Well, think about it. They, um, the ones who the, the the man who goes gets to go and ferry the bishop across is chosen by a fight. So actually, that's true. That's true. Yep, I had forgotten that connection. But yep. So so there is something there about you know a little bit of possibly barbarity, but then you have the priest who has, you know, some kind of, it seems to me at least a bit like he's opposed to the king somehow. Um, But then also that the island only has one real festival, one real holiday. And that's what we're going to get a story of, like Mm -hmm. why, why it's so, so special. And then you also get the cold pasture and we're going to talk about how the narrator talks a, a lot about sort of Irish history in these islands and sort of how he's feeling about, what history means out here. Um, but something about that cold pasture, uh, a sort of forbidding place or a f- little bit of an empty place. Um, but with some promise, I mean, a pasture is a little bit of a promise that mm-hmm. things can grow and survive there. Um, but anyway, it's a, it's a cool phrase for the kind of mixed feelings. I think the narrator has about these islands in the end of cold pasture. But, All right. Yeah. So a little setup there, setting the mood. Um, but yeah, so the story as we get it, this is perfect for 
a Christmas ghost story because this is a Christmas ghost story. Uh, but Christmas ghost also, stories. What's with Christmas ghost I stories? I know. It's like uh, you've never heard of those before. Maybe. And if you <laughs> haven't, you should go listen to Weird Christmas Podcast, where I just talked with a guy about more Christmas ghost stories. I'm the editor of a couple volumes. Yeah, and this is, by the way, this is December of 2021. So if you're coming across this years later, June, then, yeah. right, yeah, that's where you would, should go look for the Weird Christmas podcast about ghosts, Christmas ghost stories. Yeah, there's a big English UK tradition of telling ghost stories, especially on Christmas Eve. Um, it's getting a little bit more famous. The Internet's kind of sharing a whole lot of traditions and whatnot. So we're learning more and, and seeing a lot of the British specials show up more often over here like a ghost story for christmas and things mm -hmm. like that but we do get we get a mention of it in the in the christmas carol right yeah. uh, most most wonderful time of the years yeah. there'd be scary ghost stories which is just weird but yeah and that's the place where i think a lot of people who started to get interested in like oh well a lot of americans who get interested in ghost stories like hear that line and are like what is what is that about and they probably assume it's dickens it, right, right yeah and i think that's that's the obvious thing that you think it's dickens but he doesn't really you know he talks about ghost stories plural and so you're like well maybe there are other ones i don't know um but sure enough yeah there are um but yeah dickens <laughs> is who americans associate but there's a whole different tradition of telling um really just just creepy ghost stories and the sort of odd thing at least to americans is that most of the stories that get put in this christmas ghost story tradition uh, have nothing to do with Christmas. Uh, yeah. They don't even take place at Christmas. They're just ghost stories. Uh, but right. it's the whole point of telling a kind of creepy story during Christmas time is part of a lot of British tradition. And I think it, that's true of a lot of stuff in Europe that there is, that Christmas is associated with darker, scarier things. I mean, we see Krampus, we, there's a whole mm. lot of different folk legends um, about how it's connected to the wild hunt or other sort of creepy things, or even, you know, frankly, all the stuff that we do at Halloween is kind of mixed up in Christmas as a, as one big winter festival, which is probably why we don't tell ghost stories at Christmas. We've, we've broken that off into a different room for our, our dark winter nights. Yeah, we really have that. It's kind of split up, but um, in Europe, Christmas has this, this sort of other darker festival because I mean, probably it goes back to the solstice time and it being the darkest times of the year where, you know, the, the veil between the worlds is thinner and um, you, people will talk about right. seeing ancestors or seeing ghosts or seeing something of the other world. And it's the new year, right? It's the dividing yeah, line yeah. between years. So therefore it's the divide. Naturally, it's the dividing line between the living and the dead. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it there's some logic to it about about why it why it kind of fits um it's which is why by the way why we have all saints day on mm -hmm. november 1st because you know here we have these traditions uh that on the new year on october on october 31st the uh, our ancestors are going to be walking and interacting with us and so naturally the christians say well you know on the day uh after that we'll have all, all saints day where we remember the Christians that have come before. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So all of that is to say that oddly enough of all of Wolf's Christmas stories, this one's probably the most traditional <laughs> because it's a weird <laughs> Christmas ghost story, not because right. it actually has a Christian Bishop in it, but because of the ghost story side of right. it, that's what actually makes it a little bit more traditional as far as a Christmas story goes, which I think is pretty cool. Um, and he puts it on Christmas night, uh, he does. Uh, which, or Christmas Eve, which is, you know, 
they don't have to always be <laughs> have anything right. to do with Christmas, but in the American tradition, it is. So. Yeah. Yeah. And that always kind of bugged me that they, like when I first started getting into them, especially cause I always wanted to, I always want to read one on weird Christmas every year, but so many of them aren't connected to Christmas. And I'm <laughs> like, oh, but I have so many Americans listening. If I just tell a random ghost story, they're going to be like, but what does this have to do? With <laughs> what so, the heck, right? so it's hard. It's hard to find something sometimes, but yeah, anyway, well, um, you know, yeah. in the tradition of your, your, uh, Christmas postcards, mm -hmm. you could just tell any weirdo story, uh, the weirder, the and better, it, and then just follow it, it up with Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. <laughs> yep. That, that also would be completely on, on target for, yep. for the, the sense of those things. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I, I like this one just for that reason alone. Um, but it also, it, it also fits some other things about the ghost story tradition because it's told it's a story within a story or I guess suppose actually a story within a story within a story <laughs> that it's sort of the ghost story part is kind of related to us um, as something that somebody else heard or experienced. And that's how so many of the, the British ghost stories go is it's all like, you know, Oh, my, my friend told me this story or I'm relating something that that happens very, very rarely. Is it just straight narration of something that you're sort of seeing in real time? It's always told back. So so as we get into the story here, that's kind of the situation we have. Um, first thing is we have a narrator who's talking about somebody else who's telling him a story. And yeah. and he even says, this is the story Hogan, Hogan told as we sat before our fire in the unroofed chapel, looking up at the niche above the door, the niche had it held, held this holy stone. And so, it's a story is a story within a story with a story because he's this is not something he's seen. Right. This is something his father told him that was told to him supposedly by his grandfather who this this guy has never met or great or, or great, maybe great, great grandfather, grandfather. Yeah. yeah who knows <laughs> <laughs> we'll get it. but i love this i mean if you're talking about craft and first sentences this is a cool one because right. there's so much we sat before our fire in the unroofed chapel i mean yeah, there's so much going on that you you want to know. Like, okay, why are they in some fallen down chapel? They're before a fire. You know, of course, who's the Hogan guy? Looking up in an empty niche above the door. And of course, this is going to be where that stone used to be. The the magic stone that the whole story is about. Right. Um, but it's cool because what we get is a story of a hole where something mm -hmm. used to be. So it's cool. It's cool to me that it's a story that's set off about something that's no longer here. Um, it, which just adds to that sort of mystery and distance, um, which makes it so kind of cool and nostalgic. I don't know yeah. that, that, that so much of the ghost stories are like that about like what happened and, in the old house that nobody lives in anymore. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, um, and it's an so unroofed it's chapel. Past. It's an yeah. unroofed chapel, right? Yeah. So let's see, um, you know, the, in the Citadel and the book of the new sun, they also have an unroofed chapel, but mm -hmm. an unroofed chapel is, well, it's essentially a year on winter solstice. The uh, it's an observatory, right? Mm -hmm. If you're sitting there in the unroofed chapel at night, you're basically looking up at the, at the, at the yeah. night sky. Man, you find the astrological. <laughs> That's awesome. That's cool. We didn't come up with that when we were talking about this one before. That's cool. Good ad. No. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so there are, um, in this place, the niche that had held the Holy Stone. And of course, now we want to know well, what's the what's the deal. And so Hogan, who's telling the story, who we are going to find out he's Hogan's like a, 
uh, a local on these little islands where this happens. And he's leading our narrator, who's a writer or a researcher or something. We never know for sure. Leading him around to all these different places. And he says, "'Twas St. Saiyan's pillow," said Hogan, "'and rough when he got it. Rough as a pike's kiss, smooth it was when he died, for his head had smoothed it sixty years. Couldn't a maid have done it nicer, or the stone had worn away was the virgin. Her picture belike, sir, and the markings that'd been in the stone." Okay. Well, let's talk. Let's talk with a with a pike's kiss. Pikes have these big spiky teeth. It's that's going to be a rough kiss right there. Yeah, so it's a stone that this saint used as a pillow, which was mm-hmm. obviously his part of his his daily penitence. penitence. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he used it so often that by the end of his life, it was it was worn away. And then the sort of legend about the stone, well, one of a couple different legends, was that you could see Mary in the in the polish. Right. It's like the, the it's like part. you know, especially in the eighties, we had all of these uh, so often where someone would you know have a. I remember in Houston, there was a, a water stain under a bridge that mm-hmm. had kind of a vague uh, Mary shape. And yeah, it became a, a site of pilgrimage, long lines yeah. of people. Sometimes you would have them in people's houses. It became kind of a joke at the time. Oh, yeah. Where you find it in toast or you you get the Cheeto that was shaped like Mary or Jesus. Right, exactly. Or something. Yeah. And it's a kind of relic, too, that we get here. What we got is a saint's relic. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really kind of what the story is going to be about because we don't really get a big story about this saint. We get a story about the bishop who comes because of this little chapel right. uh, that's that's here. And he's doing penitence, by the way, not for himself because he doesn't have any sin. He's doing it for all of these terribly sinful hermits he has to live with. <laughs> right, right. You get that line in a second that he does it. He does it for the hermits. And it's kind of cool. But one thing that still... So it, a lot of times when I hear the stories about these these penit like with saints penitents that in in saint biographies and whatnot you always get stories about how they're of course doing things to make their physical body suffer or whatnot but I, with this one I'm like what why replace your <laughs> pillow like why not just not use a pillow I mean because not that, that, not just... that one, I that one is worse necessarily than the other but it just seems slightly more complicated to like it's easier just to go without than to replace your pleasures with something, I don't know, maybe, or maybe wow. that is the point. Maybe it is that what yeah. you're doing is you're replacing your your vice with with something. Right. Well, painful. you know, yeah. you, you could go just shirtless instead of wear a hair shirt. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, that's just lazy. <laughs> wear the hair shirt. Don't just lay on the go. ground. Get yourself a stone pillow. Exactly. Because I'm, I'm kind of thinking, like, would it be more comfortable to lie flat or more comfortable to still have your head raised, just have it raised on something hard? Like, I remember, I, the, the reason I remember, I remember when I was in daycare, like, we had these little, like, cot pallet things, mm-hmm. like these these plas- hard plastic things that we were yeah. supposed to take a nap on. But they had, like, a raised pillow kind of thing, but it was just mm-hmm. made of hard plastic. Yeah, who we kidding? Which you'd think would be like honestly, I don't remember it being uncomfortable horribly. Like I remember, like we all laid on it and nobody yeah. really complained, but we were like four, <laughs> so I, you know, I don't know. Anyway, so anyway, Saint Cian, I did you? What did you find? Well, uh, Saint Cian uh, was a soldier before he was a saint, uh, and the narrator of the story, Hogan, a uh, Pat Hogan, the name means. Warrior, basically, little young warrior. Uh, Og for warrior. Uh, Ogen was, you know, it's like a like, you know, a diminutive. Uh-huh. And uh, of course, G- Eugene also means soldier. So uh, 
you know, Gene Wolfe has put himself into this story again. And that's pretty cool because I didn't, I certainly didn't make that connection. But yeah, we've we've got the soldier imagery here, huh? Yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, and I'm I'm never exactly sure what it is the narrator's going through. Like I I've always had the sense here that the narrator is feeling displaced, disconnected. You know, generally, I don't know, guilty, unsaved, without faith, mm-hmm. something like that. You know, right? But but we never know enough about him to really know why. Mm-hmm. But I, if that's supposed to, or, or at least in Wolf's, you know, associative mind, is there something about that attitude with what's left over from being a soldier? And that's kind of how it's creeping. Oh, that, I yeah. Know. I don't know. I, maybe. I really feel like, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know whether it's true or not. And you can, you can take the psychoanalysis too far, mm-hmm. but I really feel like Wolf was to some extent when he, as a writer, uh, dealing with uh, with therapy, <laughs> from, yeah. Is, he, he he said himself that he was a mess when he got back from the Korean War. Yeah, and there are a lot of ways where I feel like this story works as a kind of working out of of some of those issues of I don't know guilt or I mean not for no. anything specific. Well, I mean, we, but, uh, but it doesn't have to be the war. You know, we're all we're all sinful creatures, and you know the idea of you know what's going to become of me. You know, for the for the mistakes I made. And I mean, I think that there's a lot of, a lot more, I think it's deeper. I think it's, it's more general actually than that as well. And maybe we can get into that. Yeah. Once again, it's just like Ada Palmer talking about so much clutter in Wolf's works. And this is, this is a very cluttery story. Yeah. Yeah. Especially when it starts. So, um, so yeah, with all that, um, and then also the guy doesn't really, well, no, it's not that he doesn't seem to want to tell the story. It's that he wants the guy who's listening to him to really want him to tell the story. So he does <laughs> offer a lot of information. He makes the other guy kind of drag it out of him. Right. Um, so the guy's name is, and, and so the guy's name is, is Pat Patrick yep. Hogan, I guess. Yep. So, mm-hmm. yep. Um, but he keeps telling the story and uh, tells a little history of the town um, and so he tells his story in a way that the other guy has to ask questions, which is cool because then it's very much like he's telling a story in a wolfy way, um, because he's like, yeah, the other hermits had the sins and, and right. then the guy has to ask him, wait a minute, you haven't mentioned other hermits. Who are these other hermits? <laughs> so just like Wolf will mention something you're like, wait a minute, you haven't mentioned that yet. Right. Uh, again, it's that sort of world building through suggestion <laughs> that he's kind of doing there, which is fun. But um, all he says, he doesn't mention the, he doesn't talk about hermits is when they're gone, then the people came to who yeah. were fishermen yeah, and exactly. they built the chapel, not the hermits. They yep. built the chapel yep. and there's no rector or priest or anything there's never has been yep it's just the chapel holds it's the chapel that holds the stone i guess yep yep and then the storm the stone had apparently some kinds of power over the weather Mm -hmm. so it says when it was storming they'd make a broom and dip it in the water and sprinkle the holy stone and the storm would pass so if you got the stone wet then the storm would pass but if it was storming really bad you carry the stone down to the water and put it in and then Mm -hmm. stop it so and so he stops there and doesn't tell him and our, <laughs> our narrator has to bug him again. Yeah. Well, it, so, and it happened, oh, it happened in my grandfather's time. And he's thinking, well, maybe it was, maybe you could say it was my grand, great grandfather's time. And it's not clear, I guess he, he, he pretty much establishes that it was his father's father who was a child at the time and his mm-hmm. great grandfather who was, you know, uh, the guy who the, who the ferryman who brought the bishop. 
Yep. And then there is one line here that he brings and he says, some say it was the pirates and some say it was the Protestants. Um, so it is Ireland. <laughs> so, you know, the Protestant Catholic split is going to be very contentious and that the Protestants are in line with the pirates, basically, um, at least at this point. <laughs> Might as well but, be. Exactly. But it's also fun. They would be pirates if they'd had the chance. So I'm sure. Exactly. Yeah. So exactly. So, but that's fine. And also I think there is, there's possibly something of that too about like like what is what is true true yeah. faith that's maybe it was or bit. yeah but maybe it was maybe it was pirates that took away the stone or maybe it was protestants yeah but uh that's what we go ahead and tell people but and 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 they believe it too that's what she told the woman who came to dublin and she believed them so yeah which is another of course line that we have no idea who he's talking about and right. i love how he says you know i'd been in hogan's company for three days and i was too sage a hound to go herring off after the woman from dublin like you know, let's <laughs> let's finish the main story before we get the other one first. So yeah, I uh, thought that was fun. But he does he does add. I knew already that she was the one who'd fenced the cromlick at the summit of the island. So a cromlick is an old stone, an old druidic mm -hmm. stone, or it could be a sacrificial stone. I mean, a cromlick can actually refer to like one standing stone that's left, or it can. Uh, refer to a whole slab where things might have happened like more like an altar um we don't really know but here's this woman from dublin who fenced off and kind of said no this old pagan thing is dangerous is that what that means i believe fence so. the crom fence the stone i believe that's what it means that she was like we don't need people going up there anymore like it's dangerous and so we need to mm. we need to, to hold it off that's what i assumed it means or maybe it just means that you know it's i don't know it's a it's it's a tourist site. I oh well, yeah, it could be just dangerous. Don't don't be going out. But there's no one on this island, so yeah. So why fence it? You don't really need right. to keep people out. But I, that's why that's another reason. <laughs> You've why got a whole ocean putting keeping people out. Yeah, so. exactly. But fencing it seemed to make more sense. Is yeah, like, yeah. It's it's some place you shouldn't go. Yeah. But anyway, but what do you think happened, Pat? What really happened to it? And then we find out. Oh, the bishop took it. Yeah. And then we find out. My own grandfather saw him. So him that was dead when I was born. So he's never he's never met his grandfather. Yeah. Perfect. He's hearing this story from his father. And yes. since his grandfather was a child when this all happened, his father never saw it either. Right. Right. So all very much removed. And then he's like, oh, or it might be my great grandfather. You know, one or the other doesn't matter. But my father told me and the bishop took it Christmas Eve. So we hear that the bush, the bishop took the stone on Christmas Eve. And we find out here the first time, really, I believe, is that right? The first time that they're on an island because they're in the chapel right now. Right. So right. they're they're up in the chapel. But we find out, too, that now we, a little bit more about this island that we're on and how um, how remote it really is. So the wind was rising. His boat was was strong enough down there, but it could hear the breakers crash, which means there he's a little nervous about like, is it going to destroy the boat? So yeah. definitely a little bit of a perilous place. The weather is never really great here for being yeah. on the boat. I don't think there's at any point anyone ought to be out in this water. Exactly. Exactly. So he says that there was this little chapel, but they had never had a priest. Right. And so it just never... right. and they just had a guy O'Day was his name. Yeah. Um, and O'Day means uh, basically child of faith. So that could, I'm trying to think, is there, there's neither a specifically Christian or pagan way to do that to, to say. <laughs> I don't, yeah. I mean, it's, it maybe it's a bit of pagan going back some, at some point or back to pagan times anyway. But yeah, I don't, I think it just means, 
I don't know. It's just a yeah. spooky name. It is kind of a spooky <laughs> name, yeah. So, plus, I I kind of get the feeling that the further back you go, that's when it sounds like things were a little more holy. <laughs> I guess that <laughs> even though that's closer to the pagan times, that's also closer to when this was a functioning chapel. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that by the end, I think that the narrator feels pretty far away from his faith or whatever like mm-hmm. uh, it scares him to have to come back to this but we'll, right. we'll we'll talk about that too um but yeah so there never was a priest here they're in the little chapel it's dangerous outside um and he sort of says to you know i had been thinking about this because i'm i'm writing about this whole situation so i said i'm pretty sure it was probably your grandfather um so he's doing some <laughs> mental calculations he says uh well probably a probably a, a relative a relative anyway. no doubt yes but yeah, so, yeah he said because they were all relations right. on the island. <laughs> they're, all, they're all related. <laughs> yep, yep. Small place. They were all kind of doing that. But it says, um, but whoever it was, was only a lad uh, when, and he helped care of the place. His he, grandfather was, his only grandfather. A, was only a kid. Yeah. Right. Um, and that um, twas the women you see that wedded the holy stone when the men were away. Um, and so it was uh, taking care of the stone becomes, uh, like the holy thing of the island. Like it's right. the thing that, that is the focus. They don't really have a priest, but they have the stone. And apparently it actually, you know, does things for them because it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's got its magic properties. So, so you're already getting a little bit of maybe idol worship, um, <laughs> but, but also well, icons. It, I was going to say, relics. but also we're talking about saints here. And so relics are not necessarily bad things. It's in that sort right. of weirder area. So, yeah. um, but anyway, he's like, you know, I said that it's pity we don't have it now because we could use it basically. And, um, it says, yeah, if it's in the bay, it ought to be plenty wet. It should be calm in the waters. Yeah. And he says, exactly. but well, it's not there anymore. It's, it's in the big museum in Dublin. Yeah. Because the woman put on, uh, you know, scuba gear, went down and found it. And when she found it, it was too heavy to bring up. So she broke it in half and carried it up. Yeah. Yeah. Which, again, if we're talking about a holy thing, that would kind of like be desecration. It is a little desecrating, yeah. yeah. To her, it's a, it's an artifact. It's not a, a relic. Exactly. So he says, yeah, she was like a scuba diver. You know, she had a mask for his face and rubber bathing suit for the rest of her and went way down there and found it. But he's, our narrator, still more interested in the story. He said, did the bishop throw it in the bay? And he says, in a manner of speaking. Well, and sort of. <laughs> that begins the real story. Like that's now right. we're finally getting to the actual story. Um, and so it all began when he was just a young priest. See, the bishop that was before him had stuck close to the cathedral as sometimes they will. Which is to say that he didn't travel around much. Yeah. Right? Especially not to the poor, more harder yeah. to get places where there weren't a whole lot of people. And the roads are bad. And he says... If you'd seen the roads before they were made, you'd thank the Lord for General Wade. And General Wade was, in the 18th century, was a, was a general. He took, did many things. But one of the things is he built the roads and bridges in Scotland and, I guess, here too. Mm-hmm. That's what I think. I think. I'm not positive. I'm not knowing all my larger <laughs> UK history. But yeah. Um, and then we do get a little, one of, for the first time, we kind of get a detail that tells us exactly when we are, that he does talk about driving around in his rented Ford Fiesta. So mm-hmm. at least we know, okay, this is pretty contemporary. It, especially it's like the eighties. Yeah. 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 For when it was written. Um, 
And so at least we know that's when this is happening, which makes the story, you know, seem a little bit more like, okay, well, it's an old legend. Then it's not like, you know, finding out stories about the wizard from <laughs> your dad's time or something. Right. In a fantasy story. So, yeah. Um, uh, but this other young guy uh, didn't like, he didn't respect the old bishop for never going around. So he uh, makes a, a promise or an oath that he'll never say Christmas Eve uh, in, the same in the same church. church. Right. And he says he's as good as his word. And he heard about this town one time from someone who was traveling up there and decided to go. Uh, so he says, you know, come the tag end of Advent, off he'd go. Um, and if he heard there was one place worse than another, it's where he went. So this is somebody who is very much into, you know, going to the lowest of the low and the worst mm -hmm. of the worst to, to, to minister to them. Um, so a good guy, you would think. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so he says, send, send word to O'Day, tell him to have a boat waiting for me at Eris, which is the town where he could get out here. And, and I like this. They settled it by a fight. Who was going to go <laughs> yeah. pick up the bishop? <laughs> Who's going to go get the bishop? Well, let's yeah. fight it out. Yeah. yeah, which is fun. So, um, and then his grandfather wanted to help, but he was too young. Father wouldn't allow it. Plus it was bad weather. Mm -hmm. And he says they had to take care of the chapel with his mm -hmm. mom. So all this is sort of the background. Um, then everybody was waiting for the bishop to come. I mean, this was going to be a big deal. This is the first time their little chapel would have ever had a bishop um, and had ever you know, been really blessed in that way. Right. So, and, and, and he wakes up, he, you know, he falls asleep and the, here we get, because the, the events that are about to transpire are very dreamlike as so often happens here, wake up, wake up, wake up. And yep. the, the, the Bishop's here. I think it's a nice touch structurally. Yeah, yeah I agree. Um, yeah. And he says it was late on Christmas, but it's still, it, well, it's, let's see, it's, it's, it's Christmas Eve oh, and late, the sun yeah, hasn't yeah. come up, right? It's yep. still Christmas. It's, I mean, it's technically Christmas day, but it's still dark. Yep. And here he comes and he says, didn't matter to him. Uh, he shook hands with everybody, smiled at all the women, patted me at my grandfather's head and blessed everybody. And then he began the mass. And then he tells this wonderful story about how, even though it's this tiny little chapel in the middle of this forgotten island, that it's dreamlike. Um, mm -hmm. And this is fun. This is worth hearing. He says, um, so that was begun the mass. You never heard the likes or when they sang, there was angels singing with them. Sure. <laughs> they couldn't see him, but they knew they was there and they could hear them. And when the Bishop preached, they saw the gates and got the smell of heaven. It was He's like, not a fire and brimstone preacher. No, 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 no. And he says, it was like crying for happiness and it was forever. My father said the good man used to cry a bit himself when he talked of it, which he did, sir, every year about this time until he left this world. So it's this beautiful little story about how these people who live this really hard life got a little taste of kind of glory and grace a little bit. So and and his grandfather just talking about it actually would cry. Yep. Thinking just thinking about it. And then it, then the mass is over and he gives Oday a letter. Hands the letter to Oday and Oday kissed his ring and to him that was a, an honor that that he would look back on all his life. Yep. And his grandfather's father was waiting to take the bishop back. He was way in, he was in the back. He didn't go inside and join everybody. And this is where the narrator is like, okay, let's get back to the point of the story. The stone. <laughs> yeah, <they're... laughs> and he's like, oh yeah. And the bishop took it, sir. Sure. Sure as he did. And he, after he gave the letter, he points at it. He points at it. Do you see? 
Hogan pointed to the empty niche and he says, sorry. <laughs> it's not there, so he, you know, he took it. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. He said, sorry, I am OD, but I must have that. And then O'Day gets up on a stool, which was what they sat on here, not even chairs or, or certainly not beach, uh, benches, and gives it to him. And off he goes with my grandfather's father. He says, all natural, sir. But <laughs> my grandfather lagged behind the women at home. And as soon as he wasn't one looking, off he runs after the bishop, for he hopes his father allow him to go this time and to help out, you know, not being as bad as it was the night before the weather. Um, and he says he ran out there and he wants to see where they are. and says that they hadn't put out yet. Um, he sees his father there in the boat, holding it close for the bishop, and then he sees the bishop holding the holy stone and stepping into it. Up comes the son, and devil a boat or bishop or father or holy stone there is. They all disappear as soon as right. the sun comes up. And that weird thing of like, and what he sees is he sees the bishop stepping into the stone. Mm -hmm. And that's such a cool sentence because you can picture it, but you don't know how you're supposed to picture it. You know, is he well, he's stepping just, into the boat, right? He's holding the stone and he's stepping into the boat, right? Maybe. Or is he, you know, holding the holy stone and stepping into it? I mean, it's one of those sentences that way. is intentionally, I feel like, is intentionally done vaguely, where it mm. could be stepping into the boat or stepping into the stone. And it's already weird, but then it's even weirder because they disappear. You know, so. And there's a reason why it turns out there's a reason why the bishop wanted that stone. Yep. Because yeah. that letter that he gave him. Um that was, uh, it ends up telling them um, something else. And he says, or wait, I'm skipping ahead. They didn't read, yeah, they didn't read it for another week, right? right? Uh, yep. But he also, but first he gives a little story about the legends that kind of happened about that, because I think this is cool. Um, they say the ghosts of the people who didn't go to the midnight mass are still on the island, that they're like ghosts <laughs> who are there, that they didn't get to see this sort of miraculous sermon. And so they're still kind of stuck here. Mm -hmm. um, and that's just a cool thing. They don't really ever show up, I don't think, in what happens later. But, um, but it, there's a reference to them later on. Right, when we get right. To the but, end of this. But, but I love that that's one aspect of the ghost story that's not the central part, but that we get. Um, I don't know. That seems like a fun one, too. So because how are you ever going <laughs> to how are you ever going to as a ghost make up for that? I don't know. If get it again. Anyway. Oh, but they do say the ghosts of them that come at midnight mass can be seen coming over the bay Christmas Eve for they was buried on the mainland, sir. Most of them are died at sea like the Bishop. He tells us that here. Uh -huh. I never seen him and I don't want to. Um, so yeah. So this whole weird story about the, the ghosts who have to come over from the mainland um, every Christmas Eve. And he doesn't say anything. He just sits quietly for a long time. And then the narrator or the, the writer says, you're suggesting that I come back here and have a look <laughs> Yeah, on Christmas Eve. And he's like, oh, well, you kind of, you like such things, sir. So I thought I should mention it. So, um, you know, I like this. I could take you out by daylight and leave you here with your food and sleeping bag and your camera. Uh, Christmas day, I'd come for you again. And I mean, that's a, yeah. He's like, I ain't going to stay. That's too crazy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I have to get out of here. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. He's not going to stay. And the other guy says, well, yeah, I'm much too busy to do all yeah. any of this. Yeah. And then we find out, you know, what was in that letter, in the letter. that the, that the bishop delivered to O'Day and sat in his hands, a physical thing that sat in his hand for a week before they read it. And it said that the bishop had drowned on his way to Inneskeen to say the midnight mass and asked the good people to make a novena for his soul. That's uh, like a nine day rite of, of, of saying, saying prayers for him, for his soul. Yeah. 
And then the, uh, and it was written by the priest at Eris two days after Christmas. Yeah. So two days after this would have happened. Right. Um, but they had the letter before then. So that adds to some creepiness. And of course you can say, well, they just got it wrong. You know, I can't even remember if this was his grandfather. Or his right. He was a child when it child. happened. And yeah. yeah. Um, but it's, that's how the stories get told. Um, and that's it. That's all he tells. He tells him. And then Hogan lay down. Um, he goes outside with a flashlight, wanders around. And then we get a little bit of his background about why he's here. And then we also get a little, now we get some history of the islands mm -hmm. and talks about, uh, this is a part that, that is sort of a cool little mix. This part reminded me a lot of peace of how, how mm, in peace yeah. he'll talk about the, the history of the people who'd lived in America and what Americans are when we're a mix of native Americans and Europeans and, and other people's memories from the future and, right. and all this kind of stuff. Um, but it just, it has the same flavor to me. Um, but he talks about how there've been all kinds of people who are here, Vikings, Neolithic people who are here way long before um, that the Celts were even sort of um, ancient right. by by these standards that we're talking about here and just yeah they're, many... they're ancient by the celtic standards they exactly. were they got the the people the 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 celts drove out were became the foundation for all of their you know fairies and right. lore for and their legends and that's that's the cool point too about he talks about how history becomes legend and that's the mm -hmm. one cool sort of turning point i think here that that you know wolf is always interested in how do legends and memories get told and it often seems like how can there be magic and uh how does magic get put into history how do things become right. legend that's one of the things that i think he's really interested in and so he's wondering in a sense you know is there something about this story that's kind of you know a clue to what's lost but what also remains even when it's centuries and centuries and centuries old so. Uh, he mentions, oh, by the way, he mentions that uh, there had once been a whaling station on North Island. And there's a North in a ski and a South in a ski. But. Yeah. Yeah. So all these things, all these parts of civilization and culture that have like come and gone and come and gone and come and gone. And so, because even that whaling station, I think is cool that that's a little bit more modern, but then it, mm -hmm. but then even that has passed on. So. Yeah, history here is not like a straight line to progress. It's not a straight line of development. It's sort of these these different ebbs and flows that that he's describing here. And it's a very um, I don't know. It's just not how I think most <laughs> Americans think of history. <laughs> like it's like American sense of history is always much more progress, and that's sort of the normal European sense of history is that you know things develop over time towards where they are now. But here he's in a place that seems to follow very different rules mm -hmm. and where things don't always they can get better but they don't always stay better um anyway well, that's yeah, kind they, of how they I'm, got pushed the, the 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 neolithic people got pushed out by the celtic irish and then you know the the fisher people replaced the the hermits and then the, the uh irish land commission kind of does the opposite of what all the invaders mm -hmm. do they just basically remove everybody yeah. and resettle them yeah, and then he says, this is kind of cool, is a few shaggy black cattle are humanity's sole contribution. And then he says, I can't even really call them wild because they don't know human beings know um, human beings well enough for fear. So it's kind of like history and humanity is in some sense been here and gotten pushed out again. Mm -hmm. And so we've got some kind of weird, ar truly archaic 
sense to this place. Um, that it's, it's outside of history too. Um, yeah, I love that we stayed a hundred centuries, but now we're, and now we're gone. Um, and then he leaves, <laughs> he talks about how he's 10,000 years. Right? Yeah. Yep. Yep. And, but then that stops, that stops this little sort of digression about history. Um, and to me, that whole part is not just giving you the history of these cool islands that he likes, but it's really to make them seem very, very distant and in, in some ways alien. And also I think very sort of elemental and non-human mm. uh, that there's something very seriously about these things that, that they can't be identified with any one set of people that are really there, that, that it's not like there's, they're Irish. And so there's a certain, you know, a, a character to this place that it's something that is outside of any of these different people who've, um, who've lived there. So culture is not there like history and culture, he would say have touched it, but then have gone away again. Mm -hmm. And to me that starts to definitely seem like something otherworldly that there's something that is very, very, very otherworldly about this place. And that's one way that he describes it, not just through the weird ghost story, but also because of the way that history has sort of come and gone from this yeah. place. Well, so. I think of it, I think, I think there's some of this in the fifth out of Cerberus. I think there is some of this in peace that we, we, we think we conquer the land, but really the land conquers us and, you know, we're, we're a side effect to it. It, but yep. we, we, we think we, we, we make the land. In fact, the land makes the inhabitants what they are or yeah. when they're gone, it's still there. Yeah. And so thinking about, like the land here, the, the whole sort of magic of the stone was that it had some kind of power over the weather. Right. And that makes it either easier or harder for people to survive on these islands. Right. Like if you, if the stone is works, if it has some kind of magic power, it makes it easier for, for people to live. But then if you don't have that stone anymore, you don't have any control over the weather like that. Mm -hmm. That's kind of one thing that's there. So if we're, we're talking about a place that has, you know, a power even greater than the people who live there. That stone is kind of a, a kind of cool symbol for like a midpoint, like some mm -hmm. way that, that you can actually have some control over it, but that's gone now. That like if we had it for a while, that's gone, that's broken. Uh, and maybe we broke it. Maybe we broke that connection. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, another way that I think that part of, part of the story here is being separated from history so this is where just to get some, to throw in some themes here, like I get a sense, a lot of the narrator is separated from a lot of things that are going on. He's more cultured somehow. He wants to take pictures. He's coming here probably to do, he says he's got some writing projects, but he's, he's still essentially a tourist because mm -hmm. um, he's not from, from there. He's not even Irish. I don't think, um, so he's very distant. He's sort of distracted from, um, the people who live here. So even though he's friends with this guy, you know, he feels like the guy's kind of playing with them sometimes. So he's not really <laughs> friends exactly. Mm -hmm. But then you get a religious story and a ghost story that he probably doesn't believe. Um, we're going to find out later that he's not particularly religious, but feels like, you know, the, the very end of the story suggests that he definitely feels like he's being going to be called to something, but, mm -hmm. but he doesn't really know what he, so he feels very separated from religion, from God, from whatever, but also he, the way this whole little passage about the islands goes, it really makes me feel like he's describing a place that, that all humanity is kind of 
separated from. And that even though people were here, they didn't make a lasting connection. And so what the islands are kind of coming to mean for him is sort of a symbol of that disconnection. And, and I think he's starting to say, I, at least the sense I get about his personality is that he's feeling more and more cut off from everything, which means hmm. that sort of ironically he belongs in this, place, which is why he wants to come back. So, cause it's, well, he plans, really yeah, well, he plans not to come at all. And by the way, we get a little hint. Uh, he doesn't say it directly, but he hears this story on the winter solstice, uh, December 21st. So he goes to banger the following day on December 22nd. And then he just has a whole series of things that, that interrupt him. He can't, he can't go anywhere. He can't get anywhere. He can't get a, basically he's, he's get being marooned <laughs> toward that island. He finally decides, well, okay, I'll just go <laughs> to this yeah. island. Right. Yeah. Yep. And that's where he's going to go back. He's going right. to try and get back to it. And so most of the rest of the story is much more sort of just a, a simple, like we get the dramatic thing of he and Hogan are going to go to the island, but then it gets really bad. The weather gets yeah, the really weather bad. The weather is really bad. It's after, it's after dark and yep. it's, it's, it, there's a, I mean, there's a little legitimate storm. It's lightning. Yes. But they're still trying to go. And it does the thing of like three times where he's like, should we stop? No, let's keep going. You know, like, should we turn around? No, no, no. And then on the third time, um, he sees giant lightning and apparently sees something in the water. And then he's like, no, we're turning back. And <laughs> after whatever it is he sees, they go back. Um, because they talk about a compass and whatnot. And and I feel like more of this is this is the the getting like it's the suspense part of the story. So, yeah. But of course, um, it's also a sea voyage. And I don't know. There's something true. really special happens in a in a wolf story whenever there's a sea voyage. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. um where's the one the actual description? Um where he climbs over a big wave and they fall yep. deep into the trough. And yep. oh yeah, it's really yep. great. Yeah. So uh, as he pointing, I half rose in the yeah. bow as Hogan swung it around to meet a particularly dangerous comber. That's a, you know, like a big, uh, um, wave, uh, barreling wave. Uh, and he says, uh, it lifted us so high that it seemed that we were being flipped end for end. We raced down its back and plunged into the trough only to be lifted again at once. Yeah, it's scary. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so he yells, hang on. But at that moment, lightning cuts the sky in half um, from one horizon to the other. Cut the dark bowl of the sky from one horizon to the other. And then he says, I pointed indeed, but I pointed back towards Eris. I would have spoken <laughs> yeah. if I could, but I didn't need to. You know, so Hogan must have seen something. Hogan knew something was about, like, right. not only were they terrified, but either he saw it or he saw the expression in his face right. he says um and they make get, it back and there's one kind of cool detail like they get back and his wife gives them gives them whiskey toddies mm -hmm. um so they're back kind of homey and they didn't have christmas trees but he talks about how they have a little advent calendar and they've got a little crash yeah, um, he points out that the christmas tree is german not irish so they yeah. don't have christmas trees yeah, yeah yeah um and it's funny the manger is still empty because it's still mm -hmm. christmas eve mm -hmm. so you haven't put the baby in yet um and then this one thing cracked ethereal mary and devoted joseph it's just a it's a really <laughs> strange thing to do like like that mary was the one 
who had a crack in her and mm-hmm. looked a little odd, which now that could be a couple. Like the stone. The like, stone right? is cracked. It mm-hmm. is actually split. Um, and so we've got that. Uh, we also have that she's the one who seems kind of otherworldly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then devoted Joseph. So there is there is an image here of somebody who's very faithful to this. Um, and he says that those two, that the empty manger, the cracked ethereal Mary and devoted Joseph had more to say about Christmas than any tree I've ever seen. Yeah. Um, now that can mean, you know, that could just be a statement of the reason for the season, right? <laughs> it could be what that is. And I think there may be a touch of that there, but it's also to me something about Christ not being there. Um, Mary looking damaged, but they're still being a faithful person. Like mm-hmm. to me, it's more the specific way he describes this, that um, you don't have Christ back. So you don't have salvation yet. Um, you have an image of love for, nope. for people and of grace, but it's broken. A, a cracked ethereal Mary. Yeah. Right. So, it's like, it. well, you know, it's, it's like the divine in, uh, in uh, containers of clay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, and, and then you have an image of somebody who's, who's devoted nonetheless um, mm-hmm. to both of these things. Um, and I think that's, you know, had more to say about Christmas. So there's, there's a real sort of kind of, of suffering faith, but also, uh, yeah, that for people who are suffering, <laughs> there's, there's, <laughs> there's something to be found here. So right. that's, that's what I feel like it is. And, and I still get the sense that our narrator is suffering from something mm. we don't know. Uh, but then he says, perhaps you'll come back next year. Um, we'll have another go. And he says, I shook, nope. shook my head. He's like, nope. <laughs> um, and his wife asks what he saw, but uh, he says, he never told her. He says, nor am I certain I can tell you. And then he says, it was no ghost. It was no ghost. Like it's totally a ghost. Or at least ghost. not so like a, not, not like a typical ghost, right. maybe a ghost. Yes. Yep. But not, not a sheet or skull or ectoplasm. None of the conventional claptrap of movies and Halloween. One thing, by the way, that's fun about so many of the old Christmas ghost stories is a ton of them are at pains to say it wasn't a ghost, like a sheet. It was something <laughs> weirder. Like I love how, and that became like a traditional thing. Like, mm. <laughs> like it didn't look like a typical ghost. Um, that's, that's almost more, traditional to say than actually see a ghost. Um, but then he says he was, um, uh, he says in appearance, it was no more than the flapping, the floating corpse of a rather small man with longish white hair. He was dressed in dark clothes and his eyes, I saw them plainly as he rolled in the wave were open. No doubt it was the motion of the water, but as I stared at him for half a second or so in the lightning's glare, it appeared that he raised his arm and gestured invitingly and with the utmost goodwill in the direction of Inneskeen. Ah, but he didn't do it. He was invited to come, but he didn't come. He didn't go. And that's the curse, right? Yep. Yep. And so that's where he says, you know, um, I've never gone back to Ireland. I never will. And yet I have no doubt at all that time will soon come when I too shall attend his midnight mass in the ruined chapel. And what will happen to me after the service? I can't guess because I implore mercy for my soul in um, Christ's name. In Christ's I implore name. mercy yeah. for my soul. So this is, yeah. it's really that, that last part that makes me think, yeah, this guy is going through some other things here that he's not, he's been called. I mean, he's been basically been given as clear a sign as you can um, <laughs> you know, that, that you should go somewhere and you don't do it. Um, so he has not devoted Joseph. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, he's at least right. not yet. He has. He knows that he has to face a judgment because yeah. everyone who didn't attend the midnight mass must then go to the the island, right? Yeah. Yep. Okay. So we walked through all that. Now, what about the bishop? Like, like for me, the question is: Okay, how does like I feel like I get a sense of the story of what this guy's going through and what these things mean for him. Um, because it's that thing, like you said, you know, he's going to be called to judgment and he feels that weight, but he's, he can't face it yet. Um, and, but what is the Bishop then? Like why connect this with the Bishop story of this weird thing where he takes a relic and it's drowned and lost in the sea. Um, and then we find out this weird ghostly thing that it was apparently yeah. his ghost who came and visited. So his, and, but he, he leaves his own relic, right? He, I mean, it's not like he took nothing. He, he left a relic of his own, the letter, the letter. Yeah. Yeah. Which is kind of, it's a magical thing, right? It is, mm-hmm. you know, if, it, but it's more, it's magical because of the story, because right. We well, what's, what I mean, what's, what's told. magical about a finger bone? Really? Yeah, exactly. It's, the, it's it, it, the the what's what's holy about it is that it is connected to this holy person. Yeah. Yep. Um, the stone though seemed to have something else going with it. Like the stone had the image of Mary right in it a little bit, and then <laughs> that seemed to to be something magical about it. And it had the saint actually there. But well, yeah. Um, but I mean, people. We, people still drowned in this, oh, yeah. in this village. So every time this, the sea got rough, you know, they went and they, they sprinkled water on it. And did it calm the water? I don't know. The water surely calmed down. Um, I, I, the people probably saw it as having effect or, you know, any port in a storm, but the, the holy thing was, was the esteem the people had for it. It's not, it's, it's not, there's nothing really special about the stone. You know, it's a, it had a, an image of the Virgin Mary in it. Well, I mean, we all have heard the news reports of people coming to hear, you know, see a stain on the wall or, a, a, or I remember in Houston, it, there was a bridge that had a water stain in the shape of the Virgin Mary. It's, it's like that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, one thing I was thinking, I kind of got a little bit of this from, uh, from Mark's write-up, but he does talk about how, for for Mark, the big thing is that the story is still about how this priest continues his work after his death, and so mm. death is not a bad thing for him because he's doing good things. Like he's he's still trying to to save people. Like he his whole life was about I'm going to go out to the farthest reaches and get the people who are farthest away. Well, he's still and, calling us and, to to the Christmas it. mass, yep. right? So even though he's dead, he's still calling. And apparently, he was even still giving that mass, you know, hours after he had actually drowned. So he's right. still he's all about living on. And but this guy is still afraid of death. Like, mm-hmm. He's still well, very much afraid of it. And well, so he, was, and I, you know, he had, could be. He had he was he was given the call. This is a very Christian message. He was given the call, and he deferred. Yeah. And now he has to think about, okay, at some point, I'm going to face a judgment. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what it means that I have to go to this island. What will, what will happen to me then? And, you know, he implores to, uh, he's, he implores to Christ mercy on his soul, because that's essentially what has happened. This is a, a, just another way of talking about 
the judgment after death. Mm -hmm. I, I received a call. I deferred. I didn't answer. Have I missed my chance? Will I be forgiven yeah. for rejecting then? Can I can I make up for it now? Yeah. Where am I? Yeah. yeah. And I like too how he ties this to Christmas Eve. Like in some ways, this is more this is definitely a Christmas Eve story rather than a Christmas story. Because I and I go back to that manger, the baby isn't there yet, but you have different ways of of like hoping for it. You've got the you know, a, a sort of cracked, weird promise, kind of like this guy is a is a weird sort of ethereal, you know, message of something that is good that will mm-hmm. come from that. You have devoted Joseph who has faith and is going to stick with it. But you also, yeah, it's the manger's empty. So you don't have that kind of, I don't know, you don't have certainty yet because it hasn't well, happened yet. Yeah, um, and and also, that's where also, maybe the, the island to me and that, that sort of fact that, you know, it's living on after death and it has no mark and, and it's, it feels, you know, as if humanity has left and gone away from it. That seems like, to me, it seems more like his, what he's worried about, like a kind of mm. emptiness that may be there. Um, yeah, yeah. And, um, and so he's, it's something about this place is both offering him. Yeah. A, a way to atone and have a good judgment, but he's also afraid of, you know, the nothingness that might be there or the, the, mm. or the bad judgment <laughs> that yeah, might come yeah, as sure. well. You know, it, yeah, it could be that's that. right. Um, well, that's, that, that, I mean, that's inherent in the idea of a call. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Of yeah. not receiving the call from, uh, from Christ. Yeah. Um, and, and all, to all, the ghosts, like the fact that there's, there's, I, when we have those ghosts who haven't come yet, it kind of does give that sense of more like, not of not the kind of thing of, of you'll be sent to hell, but more that sense of you're just going to linger and you'll still be in this sort of empty half world where every maybe year yeah. you'll be faced like that's that's sort of the terrifying thing that the the way that ghost world is described seem very seems very much like the way he describes the kind of emptiness of this landscape. Well, that's the thing. He knows he has to go. He'll have to go with it to the island, but he doesn't know what will happen then. Right. That's the that's the deal. He has yeah. that uncertainty. Also, um, uh, the bishop is sort of a Father Christmas, right? Mm -hmm. He comes on Christmas Eve. He's bearing a gift. He's going to eat your cookies. And then he goes on. (laughs) Yep. Yep. And does have the long white hair. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But no, I I like that too. So it it has um, a bit of the, and there is a story about St. Nicholas who the, the stories about him crossing the ocean and plus, there are uh, tons of stories about his relics when they were first brought to Italy from Asia Minor, um, that there were all kinds of really kind of sea adventure stories, sea romances that got written basically to kind of advertise that the church had the, the relics now, but it's fun. They, they kind of entered the legend of St. Nicholas, but there's no record of them like before the, the, the finger bones <laughs> actually, <laughs> actually move, but it is part of the legends of St. Nicholas that his, they were like basically, um, the version of heist stories that were told about how they got the, the finger bones, um, from the other churches and from some of the Muslims <laughs> who wanted them and all this kind of thing. Um, weird part of, of Santa Claus history that doesn't get talked about so much, but it's there. And I just like that whether or not Wolf intended that in here, I like that there's a bit of that too, about, you know, things getting lost at sea. And oh, we should have more Christmas heist stories. I know. That would be awesome. <laughs> that would be awesome.
but yeah, that's a that's a fun bit that I don't know if that's me pushing it. Like, I don't know if Wolf knew that much about that stuff, but I love that that there are some suggestions to that. And I'll be honest, when I first saw the title of this, because I actually don't think I read this until um, a few years ago, because I was I've always been bad about Wolf stories. I apologize, short stories, but <laughs> but, um, but um, when I first saw the title, of the Bishop, I thought he was gonna, I thought it was gonna be Saint Nick. I yeah, thought it was yeah. going to be one of the uh, sort of versions of the stories that were told about St. Nicholas. Um, yeah, in a way, sort of, yeah. right? And so, yeah. yeah. But, so I actually, I mean, I got to say, even as, you know, somebody who's not particularly religious myself, like I still find the drama of this guy, like, like very moving, like that sense mm-hmm. of, of, you know, I like, this is a powerful Christmas story, I feel like, yeah, because it's I think all so. about and I like, like I said about a Christmas Eve story, because it's not the sort of joyous celebration of wonderful things. It's all about what happens if the sun doesn't come back? <laughs> like what if the solstice doesn't work? And that's kind of metaphorically what the guy's going through. Like what if, right. what if there is no good salvation? Um, right. What if I am judged in the wrong? Well, yeah, I think in, and, this is a more Christian religious story than say even love yeah, which is so. which is the actual which is actually a recreation of the uh, you know, of Christ's birth, and, and this, but that you know, it's just kind of he's basically just creating a little manger scene, right? Mm-hmm. And in this, it's a it's a real message. You receive a call. We you you face that 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 angst that Kirk and Guardian angst mm-hmm. that that that's I mean it's universal to all men. Yeah. What's going to happen to me? Yeah. When I die, what happens when I am, when I am judged for my actions or my inactions? Yeah. And, and I, I love the idea too, that here's somebody who's gotten a kind of sign <laughs> that one way might be a better way to go. <laughs> and <laughs> and he still is troubled, right? That there's still the angst there. Like that, that to me is the, the really kind of, yeah. The, Why do you think he will, he will never go back? I mean, he could, um, he could go back. He could go to maybe, maybe if he went back and sat in on the Christmas mass that he, he would, he would be able, but he doesn't. He yeah, still doesn't. I, I mean, we don't know. And, and I don't have anything particularly tied to him. Um, what I, the only thing that strikes me is that the, and this is totally intuition and not, I can't point to really anything in the text, but because of the way he talks about, um, history moving on so much in that one Ireland in, in the one part about the islands that just makes me wonder if this is supposed to be sort of more, he stands in for modern man who, who just, you know, can't um, is either afraid um, of what might actually happen or who is just so conditioned not to believe and mm-hmm. that, that he can't do it. And it just is lives somewhere else, like literally kind of lives in a different a different world that's so far away from it that even when he's, you know, put in the middle of a magic story, he doesn't believe it. And Mm -hmm. at least part of him can't really believe it. So there is a sense of just kind of being lost, I think to him. And, and that's Mm -hmm. more the feeling I get in the end that there's something about him, you know, maybe because he's modern and he's, yeah, maybe that would be a rejection. If he did that, he would have to decide I'm going to different kind of person. I, although he seems to have decided that that 
he's going to be the other kind of person, yeah. no matter what he he says. At some point, he's going to face that judgment, yeah. no matter whether you're modern or not. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Maybe, I mean, speaking of Kierkegaard, one thing that's fun is like Kierkegaard's all about how faith is a sort of constant contradiction um, of, you know, you you believe even though you have no re reason to believe. And that's why it's he's considered, you know, one of the first existentialists because mm -hmm. you do these things that seem absurd, but nonetheless, he he does it. This is one way to read that last part is kind of um, a contradiction of the opposite. Like even there's a serious contradiction in not being a believer that even when you do see signs that would point you in the right direction, mm, yeah. you you still willfully move away from them. Um, and, and yeah, it seems ridiculous and irrational, but I don't know. It also seems realistic. Yeah, I can the, see that. I can see that too. So yeah, but that's, that's the way I make sense of it. But again, we don't know enough about him really. It's more just kind of the sense you have of him as an author. Right. Um, now the one part of this that I can't really tie through together. Um, and Mark brings this up as well is sort of that, that sense of what is it about the pagan roots that he mentions in this place? Like something about, um, the hermits that were there and then definitely, the stones that were fenced off. Uh, why mention that? Like, like how does that play into the story? Um, and I don't know if that was just supposed to be uh, helping to connect um, the mystery of this otherworldly thing that's happened, um, sort of dressing it up, or if there's supposed to be something that's specifically pagan versus Christian here. And I just don't, I don't know. And I don't know if I'm making too much of that difference. Well, no, I think what? Wolf is a mythopoetic, right? Mm -hmm. He's a, he's a, he's like C.S. Lewis. He's like G.K. Chesterton. And I think one of the common threads of them is that they don't see a contradiction between Christianity and everything that came before. It's not like Alliance yeah. says, oh, and then all the bad stuff had to come to an end, and then now we have the good stuff, and the, everything's brand new. No, all, a lot of those things were all looking forward to this event, this event when myth becomes history. Yeah. I, I like that, because then the woman from Dublin who fences off the stone, that's less about fencing away something that's pagan and more about fencing away something that would that's holy with, that's holy yeah it's sort of putting it putting it away and in a mm -hmm. sense not letting you get close to it and so since she's from dublin she's from the modern city right she's even mm -hmm. further away um so yeah that would just be a kind of nice symbolic thing that she's the one who yeah. who yeah fences these things off so that they're yeah. not really part of your world anymore it's they're one just... of uh gene wolf's regular jibes at academics right he, she works at the at the uh museum yeah she's going to reclaim this stone from the bottom of the water and in the process deliberately breaks it she's going to fence off the 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 rock jutting off it, it basically putting pants on a camel it looks to me <laughs> and so yeah it's yeah. uh yeah it's, this is all just folklore from right. old stupid people right right, right. exactly no connection yeah so I I actually like this. I like it better than than Bafana and the other ones. I think. Well, oh, yeah, I don't no, know if yeah. I like it. I don't know if I like it better than yeah. The the war under the tree. I think is just too cool. I do love the so. war under the tree, and and I mean I'm on record <laughs> saying how I like uh, and when they shall appear. Um, 
but I mean, this is this is dark, but maybe not as dark as when they appear. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, maybe you know, this, I do like this. This is um, far more accessible than that one. Yeah. Um, and once it's and, and there's a little bit more hope in it, I think, than either of those two. Mm hmm. Yeah, it's funny. I actually find this story hopeful, even though the guy himself doesn't really particularly feel hopeful. But something about, I mean, something about that image of the bishop who drowns still calling yeah. you towards mass and, you know, saying right. it's still okay to come. I mean, there's some kind of weird cosmic comfort it, in that. It's not too late. Not too late to come. You still yeah. can come. Yeah. But, and I like that if that is Santa Claus too. Then it's, <laughs> then it's even better. Santa is much more important than anyone ever realizes. So, oh yeah. Yeah. So. Well, cool. Well, if you have other ideas about this one, we would definitely like to hear them. We'll still mention them in the comments for the other show, but we just wanted to give you a quick little Christmas present. And since we hadn't talked about this one yet, and since we had two years of doing a Christmas thing, we had to keep up the tradition somehow. So next yeah, we're out year, of Christmas stories. Next what, what year will be <laughs> hard. I don't know. We'll, we'll have to search for some Lafferty stuff. Or yeah, maybe so. Yeah, that's Crowley a good idea. Or with similar authors and do something. We'll find, we'll find something. If you have suggestions, let us know. But there are plenty of other writers who've written fun Christmas stuff, especially Connie Willis. If you haven't read Connie Willis's oh, yeah. Christmas stories, definitely go take a look. Because I think hers are some of the most, most fun that that I know of. So she's got a, a one big collection that just was redone and put out. So oh. there's her, your little um, unnecessary commercial for Connie Will. <laughs> but I love her too. So. Well, I've got three Hartwell Christmas books on my shelf here. So I'll maybe can go through those. There must oh. be something in there. He's such a, three. he's oh, really I'm a, good. Yeah. I only have two. Which one? There's Spirit of Christmas. There's. Well, let me look the... over and see what they are. Uh, Spirit of Christmas, Christmas Forever, and uh, Christmas Stars. Okay, Christmas Stars is the one I don't have then because I have yeah. Christmas Forever. So and there's another fun uh, collection called The Magic of Christmas, edited. Oh shoot, hold on. Oh, people I don't know. So, but The Magic <laughs> of Christmas, holiday stories of fantasy and sci-fi, edited by John Silbersack and Christopher Schelling. Um, huh. I don't know them very well, but it um, has uh, some things by Richard Matheson, Julia May, Andre Norton, um, Dennis McKiernan, Judith Tarr. Um, so some older stuff, like those are names that, you know, probably maybe more from the eighties, a little bit of the mm -hmm. 90s in there, um, but fun, lots of good stuff in that one as well, both sci-fi and fantasy. All to say that we will be ready for next Christmas. We'll have plenty. Yes, well, I don't want the bishop to uh, chide me for failing to answer his call to do a Christmas special. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, Merry Christmas, everyone. Merry Happy Christmas. holidays. Whatever you celebrate or don't, I hope you have a good one. And at least maybe you can listen to this one driving to somebody's house or avoiding your family. It's always <laughs> a good thing. Or listen to the Weird Christmas podcast if you need. Yeah, yeah. You get if you're not done with Christmas ghost stories, uh, the last one was uh, was pretty good. Very cool. Thank you. I just let people talk over there. So <laughs> good. All right. Well. All right. Take care, everybody. Merry Christmas. Bye. How'd you like to spend Christmas on Christmas Island? How'd you like to spend the holiday away across the sea? How'd you like to spend Christmas on Christmas Island? How'd you like to hang your stocking on a great big coconut tree
Would you like to stay up late like the islanders do? Wait for Santa to sail in with your presents in a canoe. If you ever spend Christmas on Christmas Island, you will never stray for every day your Christmas dreams come true. With its as yet empty manger, cracked ethereal Mary, and devoted Joseph had more to say about Christmas than any tree I've ever seen. You know, I don't know if it's saying that it's the manger that's cracked or ethereal Mary. Okay. Okay. And the craziness went away too. <laughs> I'm like, I heard more craziness outside and I'm like, what's going on? They're like, they're going home. Okay. <laughs>